We're in Colossians chapter 1. We've been uh, the last several weeks looking uh, at this chapter, and I do intend to kind of uh, work our way through the book of Colossians, although we may not do it at this particular hour all the time. I'm not sure uh, how the Lord is going to lead in that, but uh, this morning we're going to be considering some things out of verses 15 through 22 in Colossians chapter 1. And so if you're there, would you stand with me as we read this passage of Scripture together? Uh, we'll kind of back up, actually, to where we started last week, uh, just to kind of give context, because this all kind of continues. If you've uh, read much of, of Paul's epistles or you've studied through them, you'll find one of the more difficult things to do is find uh, where to take a breath, because there's some long sentences in there. And so uh, we'll go ahead and pick it up in verse number 12. And it says, Giving thanks unto the Father, which hath made us meet to be partakers of the inheritance of the saints in light, who hath delivered us from the power of darkness and hath translated us into the kingdom of his dear Son, in whom we have redemption through his blood, even the forgiveness of sins. Now, if that's not a reason to be thankful, I don't know what is. But we're to give thanks unto the Father because through His dear Son we have redemption, verse 14, through His blood, Jesus' blood, even the forgiveness of sins. Verse 15, who, so you understand that, who is talking about Jesus, who is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of every creature, for by Him were all things created that are in heaven and that are in earth, visible and invisible, whether they be thrones or dominions or principalities or powers, all things were created by him and for him. And he is before all things, and by him all things consist. And he is the head of the body, the church, who is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in all things he might have the preeminence. For it pleased the Father that in him should all fullness dwell, and having made peace through the blood of his cross, by him to reconcile all things unto himself, by him I say, whether they be things in earth or things in heaven, and you that were sometimes or sometime alienated and enemies in your mind, by wicked works, yet now hath he reconciled in the body of his flesh through death to present you holy and unblameable and unreprovable in his sight. I want to preach to you this morning from this passage very simply who Jesus is and why that matters. Who Jesus is and why that matters. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, in your word, we are told that if we would lift up Christ, if he would be lifted up, that he would draw all men unto himself. And we know, Lord, that that is a reference to the cross and him being lifted up from the earth. But Lord, I pray that today you would help us to lift up the name of Jesus and that in doing so that we would be drawn to him. I pray that if there's anyone here that doesn't know Christ as their Savior, they don't know Him on a personal level, they've never received Him and His gift of eternal life, that today 
Christ would be exalted and draw them unto himself. That they would come to him and be saved today. But those of us who are saved, Father, I just want to pray that you would draw us into a deeper relationship with you. Lord, draw us into a, a greater love for you and draw us into closer fellowship with you and obedience to you. And so, Lord, uh, today, just by your spirit, direct us into the truth according to your word and help us, uh, Lord, to apply these things to our lives, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You can be seated. The passage that we just read uh, contains some incredible uh, descriptions and, uh, and, and really doctrine in regard to Christ and who he is. In fact, much of what we know about the Lord Jesus Christ, we actually learn it from this passage of scripture. And, and, and by comparing this with other, uh, with other passages of scripture in, in the New Testament, we learn an awful lot about our Savior. And so we, we kind of find here in verses uh, uh, 15 through 17 and then also in verses 19 through 22, we, we find this kind of uh, just this teaching on Jesus and who he is, his essence, his nature, the work of Christ and all of these things. And, and, and it follows this concept or this idea that what we believe affects our actions. And so what Paul is doing here is he's actually uh, drawing his readers, particularly this church at Colossae, he's drawing them to a, a, a point, and he's trying to make a, a point about the way that they ought to be and the way that they ought to behave, and even within the church, the way things ought to be done. But he is using doctrine to drive that point home. And sometimes I think that we miss this concept. We get this idea in our minds sometimes that, you know, preaching, if it is to be practical, it's heavy on application. It's heavy on uh, how do I really make this real in my life here in the 21st century. But the truth is that all of our application needs to be drawn from doctrine and theology. And that's really what we're seeing here is that Paul is building this theology in order to show uh, uh, his true point of Christ having preeminence within the church. And, and he starts by saying, this is who Jesus is. And so I told you I was preaching today on who Jesus is and why that matters. And that's because that's exactly what Paul is doing here. He's, he's developing this understanding of who Jesus is. Isn't it interesting how much of the world, especially in America, would claim to be Christian, would claim to be followers of Christ, but sadly many people really don't have a good grasp and understanding of who Jesus really is. Uh, they, they don't really understand his, his nature and, and, and his character and even the work of Christ and, and what he did or even his purpose in, in coming to this earth. And so this morning I want to just spend a, a few moments talking to you about who Jesus is, and then we're going to look at why that matters. All right, let's look at uh, verse number 15. Uh, speaking of Jesus, it says here, uh, who is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of every creature. So the first, the first thing that Paul says about Jesus and who he is is that he is a declaration of God. He is the image of God. 
Now, there's a lot of people that would say, well, you know, I believe that Jesus is the Son of God, and he certainly is that. But did you know that Jesus actually is the visible, physical representation of the Godhead? I want you to hold your place here and go back with me to the book of John. John chapter number 1. Jesus reveals God to us. John chapter number 1, and we'll look at verse number 18. And you might want to put a marker in John 1, because we'll be back here again uh, pretty soon. But John chapter 1 and verse number 18, notice this. The Bible says, no man hath seen God at any time. Stop there. Because if you know your Bible, you know that there were times in the Old Testament when God would manifest himself in a, in, a, in a form that was like unto a man that would interact with people. There were instances, in fact, we will call them, we often refer to them in a, in a theological sense, we call them theophanies, times where, where God showed up. Or maybe you even think about like Isaiah, who was... Uh, saw the Lord sitting upon his throne. He had that vision of the Lord in the throne room. God on his throne. He saw him with his eyes. So when the Bible says here, no man has seen God at any time, is it contradicting itself? Well, no, this is speaking of God the Father. Because it says in verse number 18, no man has seen God at any time. Then it says, the only begotten Son, which is in the bosom of the Father... He hath declared him. He's the declaration of God. And what we actually find is that, that Jesus is that physical manifestation of God, that, that he is the revealer of God. He spoke of God the Father also in John chapter 4 when he was talking to the woman at the well. And what did he say? He said, God is a spirit. So, so when we're talking about seeing God, visibly seeing God, in every case, as far as I can tell scripturally, it's always the Lord Jesus Christ. God the Son. He has declared Him. He is the image of the invisible God. This is fascinating to me. Hold your place here in John 1, but go forward to chapter 14. In the same book, John chapter 14. And Jesus said in verse number 5 of John 14... Or, or Thomas said in verse 5, Thomas saith unto him, Lord, we know not whither thou goest, and how can we know the way? And then Jesus answers, verse 6, Jesus saith unto him, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man cometh uh, unto the Father but by me. If ye had known me, ye should have known my Father also, and from henceforth ye know him, and have seen him. Philip saith unto him, Lord, show us the Father... And it sufficeth us. Jesus saith unto him, Have I been so long time with you, and yet hast thou not known me, Philip? He that hath seen me hath seen the Father. And how sayest thou then, Show us the Father? What's he saying? Uh, Philip, you want to see God, but you're looking at him. In physical form, you are looking at God. That's who Jesus is. Why is that important? Well, because oftentimes Jesus is portrayed in the minds of people and even in kind of just our culture as though he was a good man, uh, 
uh, that he was one who, you know, just kind of went around and, 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 and taught good things, and he was uh, just a, you know, a good man, and maybe even uh, some would admit that he's the son of God as though he's lesser than God the Father. But that's not who Jesus is. Jesus, even walking bodily, physically on this earth for 33 and a half years, you know what he was? He was God in the flesh. In fact, we were in John 1. I told you to hold your place there. What does verse 14 say? Jesus, the Word, John chapter 1, verse 1 says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. This is speaking of Jesus. He is God. And then verse 14 says, And the Word was made flesh and dwelt among us. And we beheld His glory, the glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth, right? So Jesus is the declaration of God. And then in Colossians 1, in verse 15, he's the image of the invisible God. And then it says the firstborn of every creature. And that would, might be something that could get in, the, in our way or cause us to stumble if we didn't know other scriptures. Because it almost sounds like when we hear that he is the firstborn, that somehow Jesus had a beginning. However, it's important to understand that the, the word here, firstborn, is not a reference to his beginning, but rather to his position. The Greek word is, is prototokos, and it, it refers not to birth or creation order, but rather to position of inheritance. Do you remember that last week we were talking about the things that the Lord has done for us, and in, in the end of verse number 12, he says that he hath made us meet to be partakers of the inheritance of the saints in light. Jesus is positionally the firstborn of all creation. He is before all things. And, and therefore, uh, he has this position of, uh, of primary importance. Okay, He is the firstborn. So he's the declaration of God. But then look with me, if you will, in verse 16. He's also the designer, because it says, For by him were all things created that are in heaven and that are in earth, visible and invisible, whether they be thrones or dominions or principalities or powers. All things were created by him and for him. Did you know that Jesus is the creator of all things? He's the creator. There's a we, we are not, uh, uh, we don't really practice creeds and, and, and recite those things in here because this is our creed, the word of God. We don't, uh, we don't go through these, these uh, uh, you know, just, uh, we don't just recite prayers and repeat things and, and all of that. We try to follow the scriptures and this is our creed. But there's a fairly famous creed that's used in both Catholic and uh, Protestant uh, congregations out there that's known as the Apostles' Creed, and it begins with, I believe in God the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth. Did you know that that statement is actually not entirely true? Now, there is some truth to it in the sense that God the Father, certainly in his position of authority and, and direction, was, was present in creation, was directing things at creation, but ultimately it was Jesus, the Word, that was the creator. John chapter 1 tells us that all things were made by him and without him was not anything made that was made. And so he is the creator of all things. He is the beginning of the creation of God. Not that he 
was created himself, but rather that he was present and active during the creation of the world. And it was actually the word, the very words of his mouth that spoke into existence all things that we see. And so he is the, he's the designer behind everything. He is the creator of all things. And notice that it, it's not just earthly things that he created. It's not just the, 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 the trees and the sky and, and, and the stars that you see. It says, for by him were all things created that are in heaven and that are in earth. Visible and invisible, whether they be thrones or dominions or principalities or powers. All things were created by him and for him. There are some false religions out there today that even claim to be Christian that teach that Jesus is a created being. That might even teach that Jesus and Satan are brothers. And friend, I want you to know something. This is very, very important. Jesus is not a created being. He is the creator of all things. He is before all things. And he created not only the visible things that you can see, but even the invisible things, whether they be thrones or dominions or principalities. He created them. He created the angels. He created Lucifer. Which means that Satan, in rebelling against God and rebelling against the Lord Jesus Christ is rebelling not against someone who's on an equal plane, but against his creator, the one who is above all things. He, is, he was defeated from the get-go, friends. Why does this matter? Well, he's the creator of all things, and because he created all things... He is also worthy to receive glory from his creation. What does it say? Verse 16, all things, by him were all things created. At the end of the verse, all things were created by him and for him. All things were created for his glory. Revelation chapter 4 and verse 11 tells us that, that the, the 24 elders that are there in heaven... Cry out to the Lord, Thou art worthy, O Lord, to receive riches and honor and glory and all of these things. And they say, Because Thou hast created all things, and for Thy pleasure they, were, they are and were created. God created all things not for even for us, but for Himself. Did you know that you exist? For God and for his glory. That's why you were created. Do you see how often we get that backwards? When we start to look at God as though he exists for us. He exists in order to help us and strengthen us and to bless us and to do good things for us. That's not, that, that's not how this works. God doesn't exist for us. We exist for him. We were created by him and for him. By the way, this is why sin is so serious. Sin is the transgression of the law. Sin is a rejection, as we heard in Sunday school, a rejection of God's authority in our lives. I know God said this, but I'm going to do it my own way. And that's why in our minds we might think, well, that particular sin's not that big of a deal. This one's major over here. You know, you've got on one, one end of the spectrum uh, maybe a mass murderer. Okay, that person is a wicked, horrible sinner. 
And then over here you've got the, the, the little child who tells a white lie about stealing a cookie from the cookie jar. And we, in our minds, we say, boy, this, you know, there's no comparison, right? I mean, obviously the mass murderer is far more wicked than this little boy here. And that's certainly true to a degree from a human perspective. But do you realize that both of those ultimately come from a heart that says, I don't care what God says, I'm going to do things my way. That's why sin is so serious. When we reject God's authority, it doesn't matter what the sin is. We're saying, God, I don't care what you say. I only care what I want. He is the declaration of God, and he's the designer. And because he's the designer, he is worthy to receive glory from his creation. And then I want to show you also that he is uh, not only the, the declaration and the designer but he is also the deliverer. Look at verse number 20, if you would. We'll skip ahead a little bit. And having made peace through the blood of his cross, by him to reconcile all things unto himself, by him I say, whether they be things in earth or things in heaven, and you that were sometime alienated and enemies in your mind by wicked works, Yet now hath he reconciled in the body of his flesh through death to present you holy and unblameable and unreprovable in his sight. He is our deliverer. Jesus is our savior. What does that mean? It, it, it doesn't mean, listen, again, uh, having a proper understanding of God, it matters. Uh, understanding Jesus and what he did, it matters. Why? Because Jesus didn't just come to save us in the sense of, of showing us a better way. He didn't just come to live a good life and set an example for us. No, He, our Creator, our Designer, the One for whom we were created, came to redeem and reconcile His creation which had been lost because of our rebellion and our sin. He came and literally laid down his life and shed his blood to pay for the sin against himself. To take essentially his own wrath upon himself so that we could be forgiven. So that we could be restored to fellowship with him from which we fell because of our sin. He took that upon himself and on the cross he hung in, in, in shame and in agony there shedding his blood for your sin and for my sin. So that we could be restored. So that we could be reconciled to God. He made peace with God through his own blood, through his cross. To reconcile all things unto himself. In verse 21, you that were sometime alienated and enemies in your mind by wicked works, yet now hath he reconciled. He's talking to saved people here, believers in Christ. He says, you understand that the very God who created you came and died for you and now he has saved you. He has restored you to fellowship. You were alienated from God. You were cut off. 
You were enemies in your mind by wicked works. By the way, so were you, and so was I. Boy, we have a hard time accepting that. You know, this person, they don't know the Lord, but they're a good person. No, they're not. I'm not a good person apart from Christ, and neither are you. We were enemies of God. We were alienated from God. We were, it doesn't matter. I, I was moral. I was all these things. Doesn't matter. I was an enemy of God because in my heart I rejected my creator. And so did you. But now, I've been restored. I have been reconciled. I have been made a child of God through the blood of Christ. Brought back into fellowship with Him. Redeemed. Justified. Sanctified. Washed. Forgiven. I mean, there's all kinds of words that we could use to describe it, but the bottom line is, I stand here before you with the righteousness of Christ applied to me, not by my own works, but by His grace. He did that for me. And He did it for you if you know Him. He created you for His glory. You rejected Him, and yet He redeemed you unto Himself. That's who Jesus is. He's the declaration of God. He's our designer. He's our deliverer. And because of all these things, He is also to be the director of our lives. Look with me again, if you would, at verse number 18. And He is the head of the body. He's the head. Because of all these things, Jesus is to be the one who is in charge. The head, from the head, flows everything else, doesn't it? The, the term I use with my boys, use your head. Use, use your brain. God gave you a brain, use it, you know? Think before you speak. Think before you act. Ultimately, everything we do, every motion of our body, every word that comes out of our mouth, it flows from here, doesn't it? And here's the example. Specifically, the New Testament church is the body of Christ. We understand 1 Corinthians chapter 12. Uh, we are the body of Christ and members in particular. We have been joined to this local body of Christ and we each have a function we each have a place but none of us is the head of this body we'll, we'll use terms sometimes and, and, and Pastor Smith would know this among preachers we'll, we'll refer sometimes to different churches as so and so's church usually the pastor will, will mention their name and say so and so's church in reality we know that that's not the case this is not my church this isn't Pastor Smith's church. This is Christ's church. We are his body. He is the head. He's the head. He's the head of the church. And child of God, he is to be the head of your life. He is to be in control of all things. And so because of this... Because of these truths that we've discussed, he's the declaration of God, the designer, the deliverer, and the director. That is who Jesus is, and here is why it matters. Because if he is all of these things, 
according to verse number 18, in all things he is to have the preeminence. Let's, let's read this together. He is the head of the body, the church, who's the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in all things he might have the preeminence. Preeminence has this idea that he is in charge. He is, he is, he is of utmost importance. If We don't live in a monarchy, so we might have a hard time fully grasping this, but it kind of carries with it the idea of a room full of peasants, and then the king walks in. The king, in that room full of peasants, has the preeminence. He is the one... He is above everyone else. He is more important than everyone else. Uh, he has more power than everyone else. And the only thing that really matters at that moment is what the king desires. Christ is our king. He is our head. And can I say to you, Christian friend, in this church and in your life, the only thing that should matter is what Christ wants. He is to have the preeminence. This speaks of authority. He has the exclusive right to dictate and direct and tell us what he desires. Sadly, we see so many churches today that are operating based on the wisdom of men, following best practices for, for businesses. You can, read, you can read all kinds of books out there on church growth and what the latest guru has to say about this. You need this technology in your church. You need to try this outreach program. And listen, I'm not against technology and I'm not against programs, but folks, it ought never take the place of Christ's preeminence. He has the authority. What matters isn't what do we do what, what can we do to bring about growth? What really matters is what does God want? His church. He has the authority. We see that in churches, but sadly we see it in the lives of Christians. And I'll say it to you this way. It happens very frequently in my own life. Where decisions are made based upon what I think is best. Or what I desire. I don't like to admit that. But it's a reality. I struggle with my flesh. And it gets in the way. And I have to constantly remind myself. I'm not the authority in my life. My flesh tells me otherwise. It's my life. I'll live it the way I want. We spend so much time trying to live to make other people happy. And we hear people say, oh, don't, li don't, don't live for others. Don't do things to please other people. Just follow your heart and do what is best for you. That's also wrong. I ought not to live to please other people. And I ought not live to do what satisfies me. But rather I should live according to what God wants for my life. Because he is my authority. He's my creator. He's my savior. And therefore, 
he ought to be the authority in my life. Not only is he my authority, but he is also my audience. I should be more concerned with what God knows about me than with what other people think of me. And it's so easy to get those things turned around where we can live our lives concerned with what other people think and forgetting that there is a God who knows everything about us. He knows our deepest desires. He knows every thought of our heart. He knows every action. He knows us. And really all that matters is what He knows. He is the audience for whom we should live. I want you to go with me to 2 Corinthians chapter 5. 2 Corinthians chapter 5. And again, bringing this back to the church, because that is obviously the context here, right? Christ is the head of the body, the church. And sadly, friends, we often see, and, and, and I've seen it even in good Bible-believing churches, this focus on we're going to do things a certain way, we're going to avoid certain things, at least at certain times of the day or of the week, because we don't want to offend or upset people. We want to make people feel welcome in church. But the real question is, does the Lord feel welcome in church? 2 Corinthians chapter 5. Notice what it says in verse number 14. For the love of Christ constraineth us, because we thus judge that if one died for all, then we're all dead. And that he died for all, that, listen to this, they which live should not henceforth live unto themselves, but unto him which died for them and rose again. We're not to live for ourselves. We are living for an audience, but not an audience of people around us, an audience of one. The head. Jesus is who he is, but the reason that matters is that it actually has an effect on our lives. It ought to. Every day we, we ought to give our life to him afresh. Lord, because of who you are and because of what you've done, I don't want to live my life unto myself, but I want to live for your glory. You're in charge. Lord, help me to live according to your will for me because my life is not my own. It's yours. You're the one who died for me and rose again. Let me live according to your perfect will for me that you might be glorified in me, your creation, and your child. He is the head of the body, the church, who is the firstborn, the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in all things he might have the preeminence. Two questions for you this morning. First of all, is Christ your deliverer? Have you been saved? I know he's your designer. You were created for his glory, but until he is also your deliverer, you're still living alienated from God. You need to be saved. You need to receive his reconciling gift. The blood that he shed for you 
you can receive his gift of eternal life and salvation. But if he is your designer and your deliverer, friend, is he your director? Are you living according to God's authority? Is he truly the head of your life? I think we need to ask that question. Is he the head of this church? We know he is, theologically speaking. But do we look to him to lead us? To accomplish his will? And this, this is something that that I have to be careful about even in my own prayer life. As I pray certain things for this church that I want to see the Lord do, I have to continually remind myself it really doesn't matter what I want to see God do here. What matters is what He wants to do here, His church. Are we willing to live life surrendered to God's authority and let Him be the fullness that filleth all in all? Look at verse 17 again. He is before all things, and by him all things consist. And then verse 19, For it pleased the Father that in him should all fullness dwell. Friend, I want the fullness of God in my life. If we want the fullness of God, then Christ has to be the head. He is to have the preeminence. That's who Jesus is and why it matters. Let's pray.